Hello, church. Pastor John is away on a much-needed vacation, visiting family in um, Kansas. I almost said Kentucky. That's not right. Kansas. And um, so we're continuing. I'm blessed to be able to be a part of continuing our sermon series in the book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 2. While you're getting there in chapter 2, I've got a confession to make. Some of you might find this edifying, because some of you may go, yeah, I do that too, and I thought I was the only one. But from time to time, when I'm reading my scriptures, I'll find a Bible passage that doesn't immediately make sense to me, or it might seem a little dense, or clouded, or difficult. And I'll be honest, my temptation is to read it, check off that I've read it, and move on, and not try to stay there too much to try to figure it out. And uh, thankfully... The Lord provided that I would preach on such a passage this morning. I'm convinced, I need to talk to him about this. When Pastor John was working through his sermon series, he was going through Galatians until he hit uh, chapter 2 and went, hey, that's a great place to go to Kansas. Let's see if we can get Rob to do this. <laughs> Let's take a look at this, chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 10. It says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he is a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, and eh, what they were makes no difference to me, God showed no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry, uh, worked uh, to the circumcised, worked also th through mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, Father, we come to you this morning in prayer. Help us to understand. Help us to, to appreciate the perfection of your scripture, even this scripture. I pray that you would make plain that which seems hidden to us. Pray that you would reveal mysteries in this that we're struggling to understand. And I pray that you would take captive of my words this morning and make them yours and not mine. And I bring all this to you in prayer. Amen. This past, well, it was a week and a half now, I was blessed to be a part of the Vacation Bible School group here, and I was asked to teach on one of the days. And, uh, and I taught on uh, the 10 plagues that was visited on Egypt by God. And, and I asked the kids, do you know what 
a plague is. Of course, most kids don't know what a plague is, but that was the whole point is it, it, it's a question that have an answer. And, and some of the older kids knew what a plague was, and so they were the answer. Um, but most didn't, which is fine, because that's what I meant to have happen. But one little, about five or six-year-old, little girl raised her hand and like, wow, she knows what a plague is. Yeah, what do you think a plague is? And I was reminded because I had forgotten. I have one, I have one daughter and she's a 14-year-old. I had forgotten how little kids tell the worst stories. And she started talking about her favorite ball and how she didn't get the red bike that she was looking for. And she just kept rambling and rambling. And I was like, oh, that's right. Kids tell the worst stories. They don't, it, what's going on in their brain is like a million times faster than what's coming out of their mouth. And they don't order things very well. And, and, and they, they don't set up context to explain why they're saying what they're saying. And, and this poor girl, I, I let her go long enough trying to find a place to interrupt her to get her to stop so we could actually talk about plagues and not this ball in the bike. And uh, I got to tell you, <laughs> reading this passage this week kind of reminded me of that. This seems kind of unusual bit of a story here. It almost seems like, uh, I don't want to say Paul is a kid when he writes this, but, but look, at how he, look at how he phrases it. It's clear that when you read this, you're supposed to, you're supposed to have the backstory. There's a whole story behind this, and it's not here, and you're supposed to somehow just figure it out. And he says, well, after 14 years, I, I went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus, and, oh, I went because there was a revelation. Um, but, you know, I went to privately. You know, there were these influential people. Though I didn't really care about influential people. And, oh, I brought Titus, but he wasn't circumcised, so he's Greek, but, which is a silly thing to say because all Greeks are uncircumcised, but I digress. And there were these spies, the spies in the land, and they wanted to steal our freedom. And, and um, oh, and then I went back to these influential people. I, I got away from influential people. You know what? God doesn't care about if you're influential or not. Uh, and just so you know, the influential people, they didn't bring anything to me. That, that, nothing really happened out of that. And, oh, yeah, so there were these pillars. You know, that was Paul and Cephas and John. And, um, you know, they decided that you should do the Gentiles and we'll do the, we should, we're going to do the, uh, the Hebrews, the, the Jews. And um, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They gave Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Titus, we're not talking about Titus anymore. Forget Titus. That, that part of the story is over. And, oh, don't forget the uh the poor people that's the story i swear a five-year-old just told that story <laughs> the good news is <laughs> when i first got this passage and i went well this might just be the shortest sermon in this church's history half the people in this church will love it john won't ask me to come back but we'll get through this but as i started doing the the, the research and started unpacking this stuff, doing the work and the duty of, of expositing the scripture. Good news is, is that this story is told to us. We get to know what the backstory is. And so if you do me a favor, go to the book of Acts, chapter 11. There we get to find out what in the world he was talking about. Acts, chapter 11, the very end, chapter, uh, verse 27, he says this. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agatus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place during the days of Emperor Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. 
So here's the setup for what's going on in Galatians chapter 2 is that Judea, which is just outside of Jerusalem, is swamped with people coming in to hear this new gospel of Jesus. They're hearing about it. They want to go to ground zero where Jesus, this guy Jesus, actually walked around, and they want to hear, and so they're coming in in droves, and it's really putting a stress on their ability to, uh, to, to house them and to feed them because these people aren't working. They're not joining, you know, they're not joining the community. They're just, they're sort of making a pilgrimage. And so it, it, it's tricky, and we even have this whole section about widows aren't being fed, and they had to figure that out. And so there is stress. You know, we hear about this church is exploding. Thousands are being added to the numbers daily. Well, that's great, but it also creates stress on the ability to maintain this church. And so they're dealing with that, but then God tells his Christians that, hey, by the way, a famine is coming. You think it's hard now, to keep everybody uh, clothed and fed and under a roof, you know, while they're here, there's going to be nothing left coming up in the soon, you know, coming in the future. And so he tells some of his prophets, be prepared for famine, stock up some food. And so the church then, they go and they, um, they send out a letter or something. They, somehow they get the plea out to all the churches in the area that if you have extras, if you can spare it, bring it together, and send it to Judea so we can, we can stockpile food up. I, I would love to find out if there's any mention of, of, of when this actually happened. I can imagine it was an amazing testimony for the new church. Just imagine a famine comes, and the people living in Jerusalem, the food is scarce, they're running out of food, but then they notice, what's, wait, what's going on with this Christian group out here in the hills of Judea? They, they're stocked up. How do they know to be stocked up? They've been coming to us for food, and we've been saying, no, 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 it's for the Jews, not for you. You guys are a cult believing in this Jesus guy. We're not going to do that. But all of a sudden, they have food. We don't have food. Can you imagine? They ask me, hey, how did you know about this famine? Well, God told us. God told you. Why would he tell you and he wouldn't tell us? We're his people. I don't know. But hey, I'm willing to share my food with you if you want to hear about this Jesus guy. I mean, what an, I, I would love to know what kind of a ministry, what kind of outreach that was. So here's the question. Why in the world does Paul and Barnabas, two of the premier teachers of the new church in Antioch, why are they delivering the funds? Why are they the FedEx, you know, bringing them? I mean, that's something you could just give anybody to do and say, hey, uh, you got an intern, give him the money, have them run down to uh, Jerusalem, give them the money, and you know, we're going to stay here, and, uh, and we're going to be, we're going to keep preaching the gospel the way we're doing. The answer to that is, if you go to Acts chapter 15, go to a, a couple chapters to the right. This whole chapter fills in the rest of the blanks of what's going on in Galatians 2. Verse 1 says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. By the way, these were referred to as the Judaizers. Unless you are circumcised, they taught, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I love that, no small dissension, okay, it must have been a blow up. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go on to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. All right, I encourage you to read the rest of this chapter, but I'm just going to, I'm going to make a synopsis of this for you. So here's the deal. This Judaizer, a Judaizer is a Christian who was a Jew, born and raised Jewish, comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, 
but he's got a doctrine with him. He's got a bit of traditionalism. I titled this sermon Jesus Plus because this is what the Judaizers were all about, Jesus Plus. And for them, it was Jesus Plus, the traditions that we were raised with. And these Judaizers had the doctrine that, that what you had to, if you, be, if you were a Greek, that if you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you had to be circumcised in the manner and the teaching of Moses, just like we were. And so that's what the Judaizers were teaching, which was a huge conflict. Because all along, they've just been telling the simple gospel to the Gentiles, believe and call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That's it. But the Judaizers come back going, eh, that's only halfway there. Believe and call upon the name of the Lord and, or plus, circumcision in the manner of Moses. And they don't just say you should do that or if you love God, you would do that. They're actually saying you're not saved if you don't do that. Can you imagine if we taught that? I don't know if Billy Graham would have had so many people coming forward in his altar call if it included the circumcision at the end of it. <laughs> I don't know. So Paul and Barnabas, they get pretty hot and bothered about it, as you could tell. And they come up with a genius plan. Here's what we'll do. You know that money that we gather together to help with the famine relief? Well, we'll deliver the money. And this is what we'll do. We'll hit every Gentile town on the way to Jerusalem, including Samaria. That's a trigger. You guys, if you guys know the, you know the issue with, with uh, Jerusalem and Samaria, you know, that wasn't coincidental. That was intentional. We're going to hit Samaria, the place where Jesus met the woman at the well, and we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to have converts everywhere we go. And when we get to Jerusalem, what they do is they give them the money, and the church is like, great, great. This is, this is tremendous. You really helped out. Oh, and by the way, we'd love to tell you about the gospel that happened on the trip. Oh, yeah, please, tell us all about it. Well, we hit every Gentile community between here and Jerusalem, and the gospel exploded. It's tremendous. And I want to introduce you to my, my guy Titus here. Uh, you know, Paul and Barnabas, you know, we're both Greeks, but we're also Jews. We're Greek Jews, so we're both circumcised. But I got this Titus guy. He's a straight-up Gentile. He's one of the great preachers that we have, and he's not circumcised, by the way, and he had tremendous ministry along the road. And you can see how they sort of baited the hook. They didn't come right in and say, hey, you Judaizers, you guys are stirring up trouble. We, we want to have a word with you. They could have done that, being Paul and Barnabas. They had authority to do that, but they didn't. They, they let the Judaizers go for the bait. And so what happens in Acts 15, it says the Judaizers jumped up and said, they are not saved. They have to be circumcised and they have to be commanded to follow the, uh, the, the teaching of Moses. And that's when Paul and Barnabas went, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I have a few thoughts on that. And they start a great debate, it says. And, and the church leaders just work through it. And they finally come to the conclusion, you know what? Two things need to happen. First of all, we're, we're going to stop with this teaching of, of the Judaizers. We recognize that Jesus plus isn't getting it done. And so this, um, they send a church, uh, not a, church, a, a, a letter to the churches. And today we might call it a position paper or a white letter. And, uh, and so they send out with people the new teaching. Listen, no more telling people they have to be circumcised in order to be saved. In fact, you're only going to tell people three things. That is, uh, they need to abstain from sexual immorality. 
They need to not be eating food that was sacrificed to idols, and they need to not be eating food that had blood or was strangled. Well, it's interesting because those are also Mosaic laws. So why those and not circumcision? I believe what it was, it was more of a keeping the relationship between the two groups. Because the other thing they did in the letter was they went ahead and they split the church. First time there was a church split. Usually when there's a church split, it's not a good thing. But I've met a lot of people who've been through church splits, and they'll say, good or bad, how it went down, they'll always say, it had to happen. And this was a split that had to happen, but it was a good split. It's the way they worked it out. They said, you know what? You guys, you guys do what you're doing with the Gentiles. You guys are doing amazing ministry. Us overseeing that from Jerusalem, we're not strategically placed to do that well. Just like you up in Antioch have no idea what's going on in Jerusalem, and you, you know, you're not really very well suited to be reaching the Jews up in Antioch, which is in, uh, just outside of Syria. So, so they, they kind of split things a little bit, and which is a great thing. And, but they said, you know what? Even though we're split, we're still fellowship together. We're still God's church. And so here's the deal. You're going to have Jews coming in and out of what you're doing, and they're going to be really uncomfortable with eating food with you if that food was sacrificed to an idol. Yes, we understand that a food sacrificed to an idol is sold in a marketplace, and that meat is cheaper than other meat, and why not get the cheaper meat? And it doesn't matter to you that it was sacrificed to an idol, because you don't believe in that stuff. You know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and that doesn't bother you at all. And the meat is cheaper, yes. But, you know, for the sake of fellowship with the brothers that are coming from Jerusalem, just don't do it. I mean, why, why make them uncomfortable hanging out with you? And for that matter, don't eat the food that, that has blood in it or, or that was from an animal that was strangled. You know, why, you have a choice of meat. Just get the meat that, that we all work with better. I mean, why not? Why not preserve fellowship? Even though we're kind of dividing things up a little bit, we're dividing and conquering. And, uh, and then there was a sexual immorality thing, which the, the Jewish, I mean, the Greek Christians, we should understand, they weren't, they weren't doing the crazy hedonistic stuff that we read about in Corinth. I mean, they, they, were, they were Christ followers, and they were being obedient. But there was, a, there was a, a permission in Greek territory that you could marry cousins. You could marry family members, and that wasn't as big of an issue. But in Jerusalem, that was kind of gross. And so they said, you know what? Why don't you say for the sake of just fellowship, why don't you guys just not do that? And, and you know, we're kind of that way in our culture. We kind of look at that and go, that's kind of gross, you know, that, that kind of breaks fellowship. You have, you have a family, you, you meet somebody, and they, they're sort of, they marry questionably within their family, and you go, hmm, I don't know if I want to eat over their house. That's kind of weird. Which, side note, interesting, because my wife and I lived in West Virginia for a while, and I know everyone thinks, oh, West Virginia, they marry their cousins. Do you know it's illegal in West Virginia to marry your first cousins? You know what state it is legal? California. <laughs> so, stones and glass houses, guys. The point is, why do it if it's just going to gross your brothers and sisters out? And so that, that was, they said, listen, we're not going to do this circumcision stuff. We're not going to force that. It has nothing to do with your salvation. But just for consideration, don't do stuff that just really makes us where we can't be in the same room together. And so that's the story. And if you go back to Galatians chapter 2, suddenly this starts to make sense. He's referring to this, this encounter, this visit where they come back with the letters, with the new position, with the new doctrine, with the new theology that, 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 that um, circumcision is no longer necessary for salvation, and he's talking to the Galatians about it, and that's where we have, that's where we find ourselves here. So this weird five-year-old story suddenly starts to come into focus a little bit. Jesus plus. 
talk about that for a minute. Jesus plus is Jesus plus anything else always equals trouble. All right? Jesus plus anything else always equals trouble. And I put that in all caps. Big time trouble. Anytime we add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we always, always end up in the trouble. In this case, what we have here is something that is, I think, very relevant for us. This is the gospel plus traditionalism. Now, like I said, when I first got a hold of this passage, I was like, John, why did you give me this? I mean, what, what, what am I going to find in this that we're going to go, oh, yeah, this works for us. And as I began to develop the story and understand it a little bit, I began to see, you know what? Not only is this relevant, I think this is particularly relevant for people in this room right now. You know, in 1850, the state of California was made a state. In 1875, this church started. This church was 25 years old when the uh, state of California was 25 years old when this church started. Kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? We are 144 years old this year. Do you suppose that a 144-year-old church might have some issues with traditionalism? I don't think it can be helped. I mean, we have all this history, all this tradition, and we're moving from one generation to another, and one of our core values of this church is multi-generationalism, and I can tell you, traditionalism is a battle we deal with regularly. And so this passage, all of a sudden, I don't know, maybe we had to be reading this more often in the church, watching how they deal with it. But the fact is, whenever you add to the gospel, you always end up subtracting grace from the gospel. Let me say that again. Whenever you add to the gospel, you will always subtract grace from the gospel. That's just how it works. So, how do we recognize traditionalism? Serious, I mean, I think that's important. I mean, if we're going to say, hey, you know, we struggle with traditionalism, who am I to not even say how we should recognize it? That's how we take a look at it. How do we, how do, we do a self-analysis about, about traditionalism? So I, I want to do a quick little, you might be a traditionalist if, kind of approach. But I'm not going to do this on my own. I'm going to let Jesus do this. If you go to the book of Matthew and go to chapter 15, Jesus gets approached by some Pharisees regarding his tradition. More to the point, he gets approached about his lack of tradition or following tradition. Take a look at what he says here in Matthew chapter 15. It says, Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of the tradition you have made, for the sake of tradition you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did, the Isaiah, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So let's break this down a little bit. You might just be a traditionalist if you emphasize the outward more than the inward. Look at verses 1 through 3 here. 
They get upset because they have dirty hands. Their hands are dirty. Now here, it's Mosaic law that you have to wash your hands because, you know, we've talked about this before from the pulpit, that the first century Jews had a very particular, very interesting, very well-developed theology that we use the technical term cooties. They believed in cooties. Not only that, they believed cooties were highly contagious. And that spiritual uncleanliness could be caught. It could be contagiously caught. And, and even in the Mishnah, the oral tradition of the law, there was even some teaching that you can't go near a tanner, a guy who takes dead animals and makes, uh, makes leather out of the hide. If you were to smell what he's doing there, you would be made unclean because of that smell. It was that contagious. And it was taught that if a Gentile walked down the street, the very dust of the ground he walked on was made unclean, and if it kicked up and you walked down that street later and the dust fell on your hands and you were to eat food with those dirty hands, you would have inhaled that cooties and would have been made unclean from the inside out. So they had a very particular, particular teaching about washing of hands. Um, and so you had to hold your hands out, fingers up, and water was poured on your hands. But then the water was made unclean, so you would shake it off, and then you would, you would reverse and put your fingers down, and you pour the water so it would rush down your hands, and you would shake that off, and now you're clean enough to eat. And so that's what they would do. And I believe that Jesus and his, his disciples did, in fact, wash their hands before they ate. But there was another tradition of the time that they believed... That, uh, that, you, that food that was left sitting out could be demon-possessed. It's called the demon shadim, could, could get into food. And, and, so, and I think this probably came from, if somebody would eat something, wouldn't agree with them, they would throw up, and that was an indication that they were demon-possessed. You had the demon shadim in them, and, in you. And so they believed that if you washed hands in between each course, then you wouldn't be demon-possessed. This is not in the, uh, in the law the second washing of the hands. This is a tradition made by the elders. We have to wash hands before we eat, but you know what? We're going to wash hands in between. Jesus and the disciples did not wash hands in between the meals. Why? Because they weren't worried about demon possession. Why? Because they had Jesus Christ with them. The guy who cast out demons everywhere he goes. The guy who could cast out legions into a herd of pigs and they jump off a cliff. They're not really worried about demons coming out of dirty food. They have the Messiah sitting with them. And so they don't have to worry about this tradition of men. And so they just made a decision we're not going to. The Pharisees see that and they go, why? You got dirty hands. And notice what they say. They don't, they don't accuse Jesus of violating the Bible, but the traditions of the elders. Pay more emphasis to the outward than the inward. That, that's when we say, you know what? We've always done it a certain way and we have to keep doing it a certain way. Uh, you know, we always sing a certain way. We always pray a certain way. Uh, we always, you fill in the blank, we, we, we do communion a certain way. We do it a certain way. And it's the way we've always done it. That's the way we should always do it. And that, folks, if that's something you're consumed with, you just might be a traditionalist. And, and you might be more focused with the outward than the inward. We need to always have our eyes not on what we do, but on what Christ did. We need to pay attention to that. We gotta, it's important for us to do things in worship, but let's pay attention more to what Christ did than what it is that we do. All right, let's go to the second one. You just might be a traditionalist if you use the word of God to get what you want. Matthew 15, uh, the, uh, verses 4 through 6, continuing that little story with Jesus, 
Jesus says, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. You made the word of God void. Now that might seem a little confusing. It was confusing to me. I did a little research on this. There was a practice in the first century known as korban. You could take a percentage of money or, or wealth that you have and dedicate it to the temple of God. And when you did that, you said it was korban. It can't be used anything but for God. And there was a little loophole business going on where the father of a household, the patriarch of a family clan, everyone lives on the same parcel of land together, everyone does the same job together, everyone works for the same family corporation together, and the patriarch would go to the youngers and said, listen, we need to buy a new parcel of land to expand our, our family corporation, or we need to fix some farm equipment or something we have, and that takes some funds, or, or maybe we need to pay a tax, or, or maybe we have to pay off a debt. And since you all inherit together, and since you all earn profit together from this family corporation, you all need to share in the cost of this together. But then one of the sons would pop up and say, oh, but dad, I would love to do that. I would love to help pay the bills. But you have taught me to be such a righteous young man, and so I can't. I have taken all my funds and I've made them korban. They can't be used for the family. They have to be used for the temple. Never mind, I never actually get around to the temple to give them the funds. And I hang on to it. And when the father dies and the family wealth is distributed and everyone inherits, I still have that money, but my brothers have less because they help pay the cost of the farm. But it was Corban and how, how holy am I? And that was a practice that was going on and it really disgusted Jesus. He was quite upset about it. And he said, when you do that, you have made the word of God void in your life. I would argue that the practice of korban is not something that died in the first century. I think it happens with traditionalism all the time. There are churches I've been in where there are things that, it's just things that sit around and you go, what's that for? Well, we've had that forever. We don't do that anymore. I've seen things that never get used, things that never get turned on, things that never get moved, things that just, you know, they're just there. And it's like, well, where did that come from? Well, we, that was something we did 50 years ago. We don't really do that anymore. Well, why don't we move it? Why don't we, why don't we change it? Oh, no, 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 no. It was dedicated to God. It's Korban. It can't be touched. And that's a tricky discussion to have because you want to honor the gifts of people who came before you. You want to honor the legacies that came before you, but at the same time, you want to make some room for new legacies to come. And so that's a delicate balance of, of we say, you know what, maybe that's not so korban anymore. Maybe, maybe that can get moved around. Maybe we can reallocate some of what we're doing. Old things have a way of becoming korban. I want to be very careful about that because we're an old church. We have a lot of old things. Old things are so neat. My wife and I lived on the East Coast for a while, and i got to tell you, having grown up in California, old is a very different concept there than it is here. We had an opportunity to take an anniversary trip to Greece where old took on a whole other meaning there than it, than it did here. You know, we, there was an olive tree that was planted. That it, it was actually a thousand years old when Jesus Christ was born, which is amazing. And it's still producing olives, still part of an olive factory. A thousand years old when Jesus was born. Now, we have trees up in the sequoias that are older than that. But I'm talking about a tree that was planted by man's hands in a row. And it's still, I mean, old is neat. 
I don't think old needs to be thrown away, but we got to be careful when old becomes korban. And it's not available to be used fresh and new by the Lord. Last, last definition of, of traditionalism. You just might be a traditionalist if you draw your identity from the doctrines of men. Hypocrites, it says. Jesus says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I think this is actually the particular issue that was struggling that they were struggling with in Galatians chapter 2. Remember the whole issue about circumcision? You are not saved unless you're circumcised in the manner of Moses. That is probably the most hypocritical thing I've ever read in the scriptures. And then crazy, staggering level of, 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 of hypocrisy. You know why? Moses was never circumcised. Do you know that? If you want to read a Bible story that'll blow your hair back, and I want to be careful because I can't tell the story with certain ears, young ears in the room, but go to Exodus chapter 4. Holy smoke. God is seriously upset with Moses for not being circumcised. Apparently, he commanded Moses to do it. Moses said, no, not interested in that. God decides he's going to kill Moses, sends a spirit to kill Moses. Moses' wife sees it coming, grabs a knife, circumcises her son, takes that little bit, touches it to Moses' uh, area, and begs God to allow Moses to be covered by her own son's circumcision, and, Moses, and God says, okay. What? Moses wasn't circumcised? He's teaching everybody else they need to be circumcised, but he never did it. Worse than that, he never circumcised his son. And worse than that, he writes the book of Leviticus, where he puts in there every young male has to be circumcised. Worse than that, he doesn't practice his own teachings. We know this because you read the book of Joshua. After Moses dies, Joshua takes over uh, the Israelite people. He leads them over the river Jordan into the promised land. What does it say they do? They all get circumcised. Nobody was doing it. And yet, <laughs> Moses and circumcision is what the Judaizers use as a template for salvation. How insane is that? The one thing Moses didn't do is the one thing we all need to emulate. What a level of hypocrisy. And that's what happens when we follow the doctrines and traditions of men rather than God, is we end up in serious levels of hypocrisy to the point where it's just laughable. So what, so how, how would you know a doctrine of man? I'll just make it very simple. If you find a, a, a neat church word that ends in I-A-N or I-S-T or an istic or an ism, you found yourself a doctrine of man. You could push back on me and say, Robert, well, what about Trinitarianism? You say you don't believe in a trinity? Well, of course I do. Listen, doctrines are really important. They help us to understand and interpret what is hard to understand and interpret in Scripture. They're tools. But let's, remember, let's remind ourselves that these were, these tools were not created by God. They are created by man. They're very useful, but they're also very limited. You might say, well, what about Baptist? That ends in IST. It's on the sign right out there, right on the street. Baptist. You think we should change that? Well, since you mention it, and seeing how John is in Kansas, <laughs> I'm going to have the ushers come forward. They have scraps of paper. We're going to write down what names you want. That was a trick. I want to see how many of you actually look to see if the ushers are coming. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a gas? What have you done? By the way, it's just a side point. It's kind of interesting. The number one most common name for a church in America, First Baptist Church. It's a good name. Here's the deal. 
It's okay for us to practice baptistic. It's not okay for us to identify as baptistic. Does that make sense? We have to identify as Christ followers, and that alone. That's why we could practice baptistic and identify as Christ followers. In the church across the street, they could practice Lutheranism, but they identify as Christ followers, and we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. You see how that works? We're connected together. We can fellowship with one another. We can't allow our doctrines to, to determine our identity. We can practice and we have great practices we do in this church that, I, that, that, that really defines what we look like and how we worship God. But our identity is always in Christ alone. No Christ plus anything else. Just Christ. Not Christ plus baptism. Not Christ plus Baptist. Just Christ. And, and so that, we just need to, we need to pay attention to that. We can get that way. There are, I would dare say, I want to be careful with this, but in a room this size, there are likely, there are some people in here who would say, I am Baptist in my, my practices and traditions, and I identify as Baptist. If that's the case, I would strongly urge you to reconsider. You just might be a traditionalist, and you just might need to uh, uh, approach God and say, you know what, maybe I need to let go of some of this stuff. These labels help us in our practices, but they don't need to identify us. There's a difference between practicing doctrine and being identified by doctrine. And when that difference is, it's all about grace. That's what it is. It, you know, and that's what John's been preaching out of, this, out of this sermon series over and over again is grace. He's been talking and preaching about a heart, having a heart of grace. You notice that the early church leaders in, in Galatians 2, they really had a heart of grace. They were pretty hot and bothered about this, this doctrine, but they didn't go storming down there and make a big deal out of it because you know, they, they recognized that being right did not give you the privilege of being rude. Let me say that again, because I, I think sometimes we, we, we miss that. Being right does not give us the privilege of being rude. And so we can have differences of opinion, but let's not be beating each other up over that, amen? They, they did, and let's, let's just be clear about this, the Judaizers didn't invent this stuff. They had tradition. They had scripture behind them on the circumcision stuff. And so, but they had to work, they had to navigate this stuff out. A 144-year-old church will struggle with Jesus Plus, and that's why we gotta be a, a grace-filled people all the time. I believe that grace-filled people find it hard to be traditionalist. If you focus on being grace-filled, you're, be, you're gonna find it very difficult to be focused on tradition. You know, John's been preaching last week, he said that grace changes people. You remember that? Grace changes people. He said, Pastor John said, that it is impossible to not be changed by grace. Which makes me think about Lamentations 3. His mercies are new every morning. His grace is new every morning. And if we're grace-filled people, then every morning there is a newness in us, a grace in us that is new every morning. It's renewed, it's awoken every single morning, fresh, refreshed, every morning a grace. That makes us a grace-filled people. I am convinced, church, that a heart of grace is what's going to lead our church into the next hundred years. I have no doubt we're going to, there's going to be somebody up here talking about how we're 244 years old today. And it's only going to happen because we're a grace-filled congregation today. Amen? Let's just, but let's just be eyes open and well aware. There are going to be arguments. There will be, as Paul said, no small amount of dissent 
disagreement, debates. We're going to have that. But let's argue well. Let's work this stuff out well. Let's have a heart of grace into it. Let's, let's do what they did, and they navigated through the issues, and they figured out a solution that, that didn't completely offend the Jews, and yet didn't completely shackle the Gentiles. And they said, you know what? Maybe, maybe we need a little bit of breathing space between the two ideas. Maybe we could still be in fellowship, but maybe, you know, and they worked out some great stuff. Why? Because they had grace in their hearts. And if we're grace-filled, I believe we're going to handle it the same way the early church did. Now, every first Sunday of the month, we're blessed with a tradition. We do communion in this church. It's a tradition, but it's not... It's not something that identifies, you know, it's something that we do, but we make sure that it identifies Christ in us. And I invite the ushers to come forward and help me lead in communion this morning. And as we do this tradition, I pray that you just, you remind yourself that you have a heart of, uh, of Christ-likeness, and you have a heart of grace in it. Now, to get us into this heart of Christ-likeness and grace, we, we like to sing the doxology. This is actually a new tradition that just started up just this past year, but we're really liking it. Dox means, uh, 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 what is it? Uh, dox means right. Ology means truth. And so this is a song of right truth. And just let's sing this song together and let's just get in the right mind of Christ.